Hi, this is Dr. Carlo Dell. I'm chairman of the board at APQC. And do remember to rate, review, and subscribe to APQC podcasts on Apple or Spotify or whatever channel you use. Today, I am excited to be here with Chip Heath. Chip is the author of four New York Times bestsellers and a professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and a longtime friend of APQC. Chip has given us sneak previews in the past to some of his other bestsellers, including Decisive. And in fact, Chip, I still use uh, techniques from Decisive all the time That's when good I'm to making hear. decisions. Yeah. So today he's giving a sneak preview of a new book that he's co-authored. And it's called Making Numbers Count. And his co-author is Carla Starr. And welcome to the podcast, Chip, and for giving us a sneak peek uh, at your book. So I want to dive right in. Most of the people who are going to be listening to this are uh, in organizations where they have to make presentations all the time. And this the people that they're presenting to like to have data. The problem is that not always... Uh, we can't figure out how to make the data as compelling to others as it is to ourselves. So we're trying to make a pitch for a, a project or funding, and we don't do such a good job, or to galvanize action, and we don't do such a good job. So I really see your book as an attempt to help us translate the, that data and numbers into something more useful. So tell me a little bit about why you think we as humans are not prepared to be good as at numbers. Well, it's... We, we did a lot of research, Carla Starr, my co-author, and I did a lot of research in the anthropology literature and the psychology literature on this. And it turns out we're pretty good up to about five. You know, so, so we can, if we're adults, can look at a kid's picture book and there are two goldfish, we, we automatically know there are two. I mean, you don't have to count them. But you get past four or five and you get to six goldfish. That's a little more difficult. And eight goldfish is almost impossible for a normal person to recognize. So psychologically, we're prepared to deal with numbers to about five. And in fact, historically, culturally, if you look at most of the societies that have ever existed in the world, they had names for numbers one through five. But the names run out after that. And so six is lots. And seven is lots. And 100 million is lots. And, and so they're left with one word to, to cover the rest of the spectrum. And so that just to say that what your, what your listeners are doing, what your members are doing in being analytical focused is not a normal human tendency. And so it's not surprising that it's hard to get that across to other people in their normal lives because we're not normally prepared for, for, that kind of, for that kind of analysis. And one of my favorite examples is the difference between a million and a billion. I mean, we all know that a billion is bigger than a million, but how much bigger is it? So suppose you count in a million seconds, how long would it take you to count those? 12 days. How long would it take you to count to a billion seconds? 32 years. And that's, that's just a visceral body blow to our understanding of millions and billions. And I haven't talked to anyone, physicists or mathematicians or engineers, who don't get that same body blow when they, when they realize the magnitude of that comparison. And yet it's something we talk about every day and, and, mm -hmm. and take, it's trivial. Well, one of the things I like so much about the book, and, and you're in Carla's work, is that you teach us how to translate the, the numbers and the messages we want to get across to one that people will actually remember. Tell me some more about translation and what you mean by that. Translation is, is an acknowledgement that when we're dealing with the numbers, we're dealing with a second language. So it's just like we wouldn't give a, a presentation and, and come out with a phrase in French or German or Mandarin without translating that for our listeners. And so 
the, what's incumbent on us to do every time we use a number is to use something to translate that or to attempt to translate that to our readers. So Pakistan, for example, is 340 square miles in area. You could say that, and that's not gonna mean much to most people than geographers who are very up on their number comparisons. But if you say to an American, that's about two, the size of two Californians, all of a sudden that makes things more understandable. And what was amazing is some researchers at Bing, Microsoft Search Engine, did some research that showed that adding one of those simple comparison phrases, even if it wasn't a very good comparison phrase, so two Californians is a pretty good comparison. Five Oklahomas, I'm not sure people know that as well, and it's, it's familiar. But whatever the phrase, Microsoft people found that giving people some context for understanding a number had advantages in memory and usability six weeks later, up to six weeks later. And that's a pretty good day's work when you can double accuracy with one simple comparison. I think of an example, it's much later in the book, but that is vivid for me right now, which is uh, people remember that uh, there's enormous tragic wildfires in Australia in mm. 2020, and they burned an enormous number of acres. And I can't remember that number at all. But what I can remember is the acreage was equivalent to two uh, times the size of Portugal. Yeah. yeah. That I remember. And, and there are lots of ways of coming at that. And we don't have to be nailed the perfect one automatically. That one's going to work across international borders. But if you're on the West Coast of the United States, you say that's about the area of the state of Washington. Yes. If you're on the East Coast, you say that's about the area of the size of New England. And, and maybe we get even more benefit from that because it's got Connecticut and Rhode Island and Massachusetts. And so there are multiple states that go into that, into that comparison. But the fundamental point you're making is exactly right, is that when we have something that's difficult to deal with, we can kind of hack our own brains by using as a comparison something else that we were more familiar with dealing with. Mm-hmm. And that's a profound insight about the translation process that is true, is true throughout the book. Is very often when there's something that's conceptually hard, if we switch dimensions to something else our brain is better able to think about, we're going to be better at thinking about that. Yeah, and I, there are so many examples of that in the book, and there's also a lot of principles and what you call mind hacks that you use in the book to help us be able to translate those numbers for other people to understand it and relate to it, which I think is what the book is all about, actually. Exactly. Yeah. So when it comes time to uh, understand sort of statistics, you talk about the human scale principle. So what's the human scale? Let's start with that principle. Human scale principle says that very often when we're making comparisons, we're tempted to, to reach for the reach for the outskirts of what we're dealing with. And so you've, you've heard comparisons before. That's like taking a trip back and forth to the moon three times. And that would be good if we were astronauts in the habit of taking trips back and forth to the moon. But but very often what we need is not 18 elephants stacked on top of each other to, to indicate weight. What we need is something much more, much more close to us. And so, for example, one of my favorite examples is some students were, were given the assignment by me in class to talk about why they might want to buy carbon fluorescent bulbs when they first came out many years ago. And, and the advantage of the carbon fluorescent bulbs is they would only use a quarter of the electricity of regular bulbs. The problem is one quarter is, is a fraction. We're not good at fractions. And so I challenged the students to come up with something better. And one group of students stood up and said, we decided to ignore your assignment about fractions because that's not the real selling feature that we think is, is useful here. I mean, these bulbs supposedly last seven years in between changes and a normal incandescent bulb only lasts a year. And so imagine if you only had to change bulbs every seven years. 
Now, that's pretty good right there, just to put it on more concrete turf, more human scale turf, things that we think about as opposed to fractions of electricity. But they went one beyond that and they started translating seven years. Now, I would have thought that I understood that number, but they said, what that means is if you change one of these bulbs when your child is learning to walk, next time they're gonna be learning about oxygen in second grade. And the time after that, they're gonna be in driver's ed. And when they said that, they actually got applause from their classmates. And MBAs are not known for applauding their classmates in class. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, yeah. a good, that's, a good, that's a good insight. And what it, what it makes you think of is, wow, that's a long time in between changes. As a parent, you're going you to think, wow, my time is short with my kids. And yeah. I better, better go to the zoo this weekend. So. Yeah, right. That's always good. Yeah, that's always a good idea. One of the so that's a very important principle, I think, is the human skill. I think there's also a, one um, that harks back to one of the, your very first uh, bestsellers, which was made to stick, which is the power of vivid examples, especially ones that have an emotional content, which we all know from research is um, important for memory in general. Is to have that. So say a little bit more about vivid examples and, and how to, what else we can do to make these human scale examples more vivid. Yeah. And the important thing about vivid is, is it not, it's not, one, one meaning of vivid is flashing lights and color and stuff. And what we want is just something that's really real and tangible. And so, for example, one, one dilemma in conservation is how much water do we have that we can consume as, as individuals and as animals. And it turns out the water supply is limited, even though the world is made of water. 97.5% of the water is salinated, so it's in the oceans. Of the 2.5 that's left, it's fresh water, 99% of that is locked up in the ice caps or the frozen tundra. And so we're, we're, we're dealing with the 0.0025% of the remaining water. Now, I don't know about you, but my mind blurs with all those figures. And in fact, my co-author Carla Starr was in a seventh grade class talking about conservation and her teacher came with the following example. So imagine a gallon jug and it's filled up with salt water. That's the amount of our water supply that's selenated. And floating at the top of that gallon jug are three ice cubes and there are several drops of water pouring off of each ice cube. That's the picture of the fresh water supply that we're dealing with. And we better keep that few drops that are coming off the ice cubes uncontaminated by pollution and stuff, because that's all we've got to deal with. It's a now, great example. That's a great example. And, and so some teacher somewhere did something that caused a seventh grade Carla to, yeah. to, to become a, a, a scintillating conversation partner for adults that come to her parents' house for dinner, because she, she felt comfortable striking up conversations with something about some issue that was really important to society. <laughs> and she had a contribution to make. I think that's, that's a remarkable thing. Yeah, and I think actually you bring up a point which I don't remember you making in the book, but you made just now, which is that people look forward to a presentation if you're going to tell them something memorable and fun like that, striking. Yeah. I, let's take the word striking back to Striking is good. Vivid. Striking in, instead of vivid. So I'm with you on that one. One of the others that is not – tell us what principle the following example that you use illustrates, yeah. which is um, – there are not very many women as CEOs in the Fortune 500. That's one way people can put it. But the other uh, way that you and Carla point out, you could say there are more people with the first name James in the Fortune 500 than there are women. Yeah, that's, that's just a shocking, sobering statistic. And, and it was used, it was not Carla and I's original idea. It was used by a group of 
writers for the New York Times who were talking about the, the ability to women to rise to the highest levels of various fields in society. And you'll be happy to know that that's no longer true. The percentage of women is now as big as the percentage of James and Roberts in you know, CEOs. And that, when you phrase it like that, it's just ludicrous. I mean, we, we're not we're close to being an egalitarian society that we want to be. And I think the principle that it illustrates is to get numbers across, you don't always have to use numbers. And so there was no number cited there. It didn't say percentage of James is 3.4% and the percentage of female mm-hmm. CEOs is less than that. You, you just took a comparison that shouldn't by, all, by any stretch of the imagination be true. And, and by bringing it to people's attention, you, you highlight the, the source of the problem. And I think there's a lot of social problems. We'll return to that in a minute. The, that this ability to translate could be so helpful for advocates of various causes if they under, you know, understood how to do that. There's a couple other things you mentioned. Um, what would you say to the person who said it's too easy to lie with statistics, mm. therefore this is another technique for doing that? Well, I think it's easy to lie with statistics, but it's, it's a whole lot easier to lie without statistics. <laughs> and as a, as a person that spent my life doing research, I mean, there are lots of times when I wanted an experiment to come out one way and it just came out the other way. And so you, you look at the data and you can't support the hypothesis that you have. And that's a sign that we're making progress when, when our numbers inform the decisions that we make. But in terms of lying with statistics, I think if you use these principles and come at numbers different ways, you're more likely to detect when somebody's fudging the numbers. And so I'm, I'm inspired here by a study and I don't know who did this. I remember reading a few years back that Department of Transportation was looking at how it's the easiest way to catch a terrorist if you if you stop one. And you're not, it turns out you're not going to be very likely to catch somebody that's coached with a story that they've really remembered. And so if I'm supposedly going to New Orleans for a business meeting, you ask me about the business meeting, I've already prepared an answer for that. So what they found is that the best way of catching and they would send simulated terrorists through the lines that was something suspicious and then watch how people interviewed them. The simplest way to catch a terrorist is to ask them an innocuous question that's just the side of what they would have thought about. So if they're going to New Orleans for a business meeting. You say, oh, what's your favorite place to eat breakfast in New Orleans? And all of a sudden, even though they claim to be going back and forth to New Orleans all the time, that's something that throws them because mm-hmm. it's not off their, on their radar screen. And I think... When we, when we deal with numbers, giving people a, a new domain to play with. So, you know, the budget that you're talking about, we've got this big expense that you're worried about. What area of this table, this table where our whole budget of dollars, mm-hmm. what area of this table would we, would we associate with that expense? Mm-hmm. Very often what you find out is it's a very tiny quarter-sized thing on the side of the conference table and mm-hmm. instead of the big thing that you were claiming it to be. That's what I thought was one of my favorite examples in there of how people can use this in everyday life is if you're in a meeting and somebody's trying to propose a budget, another version of that that you just described is, okay, of that flip chart, if that flip chart were the whole budget, how much of that is your proposal or your request? And it's just like, whoa, you know, you could sell anything almost that way unless it's, you know, a huge congressional bill, which they're having trouble doing. Um, one of the other things that I thought was really interesting um, in in the book was examples that you used that um, got at 
something you called awe that you and Carla called at the end of the book. You t talked about the power of examples to uh, and this translation. Let's use the word translation to create awe. Can you say a little bit more about that? I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think I think there there are a couple of ways to think about awe. So awe is something that happens when we when we see something that it's hard for us to put in perspective. And there, there are very big things and very small things that do that. So let me give you a very small thing that does that. We talk of athletes' reactions in terms of milliseconds. That's it. We're going to take a second. We're going to divide it into a thousand pieces and do something with it. Well, a thousand pieces is too hard for people to understand. So let's divide it a thousand milliseconds into four. Those four claps happen in about a second. And here's what, here's what research tells us about hitting a baseball if you're a professional baseball player, is that your first decision is about 250 milliseconds to, to determine whether to swing at the pitch. And then you've got about a half of that, 125 milliseconds to swing. And after that, the play is over. Yeah. And so if you think about a play, that's it. Yeah. And that's amazing to me. That's an awe-inspiring set about somebody's ability to read a pitch and respond that quickly. The very small things give us awe, but we only can capture the very small things by translating it into something that's more tangible, like claps. Here's a big thing that produces awe. We talk about the distance between us and the nearest, nearest light solar system is about four and, a half, four and a half light years. And so how big is that? Well, suppose lots. you- <laughs> Lots. Lots. Uh, lots. Exactly, <laughs> lots. Um, and, and so shrink our solar system down to the size of a quarter. And so at this point, one of our pioneer spacecraft that we spin off back in the 30 years ago mm -hmm. has just recently exceeded the bounds of our solar system 30 mm -hmm. or 40 years later. And, and so you take that diameter and shrink it down to the size of a quarter and you put it down at one end of the soccer field near the goal. And then you walk all the way down to the other end of the soccer pitch and you take another quarter and you put it down. And that second quarter is the, the second solar system that's closest to us in near distance. And that space, that wide space between those two quarters is the distance that you'd have to travel in four and a half light years. Mm -hmm. And that just is awesome to me. I mean, as a child of NASA, I've dreamed of going into space, but thinking about traversing that distance to get to the nearest solar system is, yeah. is an awe-inspiring thing. Yeah. Exactly. And the, um, there were some other awe-inspiring examples in there, like how, many, uh, how much energy a hummingbird takes. Yeah. We were hummingbirds. We have to drink a Coke every minute or every second? I mean, every, every, minute, every minute. Every minute you got to drink a Coke. So that's a lot of Cokes. So I don't know how they do it. And what, what, I, what I like about that example is we took something that we had all heard about, that the hummingbird metabolism is higher than people. And yet by translating it into human scale and talking about the process, and this is something that, that your members are, are completely at home with doing if they think to do it in terms of their numbers and their, and their organization. But we converted the hummingbird thing to a process and all of a sudden it looks remarkably different than what we can imagine. So drinking a Coke a minute every minute of your waking hours as a 197 pound male to equal the metabolism of a hummingbird, that's, that's astonishing. But also like things like Six Sigma, mm -hmm. you know, back when we were doing that, yeah. 3.4 defects in a million. What that means in terms of cookies is if you bake two sheets of cookies at night, two, two dozen cookies, every one of them would kind of perfectly caramelized on the outside with a soft center with the perfect number of chocolate chips. 
And what three, what six sigma means is that you would do that two batches two batches a night for thirty seven years <laughs> before you'd have your first deformed cookie or slightly burnt <laughs> or slightly slightly undercooked, and and that that gives me a lot more respect for my operations colleagues when when I put that into perspective. Think about oh, what no. we're really achieving on on cert- achieving certain levels of quality. I agree. The um... One of the things, you know, if you tell, if you're teaching journalists how to work, you'll say to a journalist, you know, be sure to give them the the punchline, then the who, what, when, where, why, and how. So that's kind of a hack for journalists. You know, they think through that. If I want to try to come up with a translation, are there any easy hacks for me to start looking at, like size or distance? Or can you give me some things that we could leave our listeners with that they can use quickly to uh, start thinking through translations in their own life? I think that the thing that you want to think about is just start brainstorming around, given the numbers that you have, how many dimensions can you put those numbers into? And so if, if a ratio is 33 to one, what that means is that an hour would be two minutes long. What that means is a month would unfold in a day. A year would be less than two weeks if you had a 33 to one compression ratio. Um, and so, so you just go through more dimensions than you started with. And somewhere there's going to be something that grabs your attention as well. That would be that would be a useful way of thinking about things for people. And, and I think the only thing that stands in the way for the most part of doing translation is we've got to think to do it. Yeah. And there's a, a villain here, which is the curse of knowledge, that says that if you know something really well, it's hard for you to imagine what it's like not to know what you know. And anybody that's done a serious analysis of anything is going to be in that position of the expert that's cursed with their knowledge. So you talk to an 11-year-old video gamer and you ask him how his favorite video game is, you'll be on the other side of the curse of knowledge that 11-year-old cannot fathom the depths of your ignorance. <laughs> and, and yet what, what we have in, in doing analysis is we've got to take those same principles and translate our numbers into something that somebody that hasn't done the analysis yet can understand. I'd like to uh, just reinforce what you just said, because I think it's essential whenever we're trying to communicate with another human being is to realize their mental model is not the same as ours. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not primed to receive in the same way that we're transmitting. That's right? right. And they don't have all the context that we have, just like we don't have theirs. And that's really hard for experts. We found in some research we did, Chip, which uh, you may not be aware of, is that we found that uh, we had three categories of expertise, Mm -hmm. experts, nexperts, and novices. And the nexperts could still remember enough about Mm -hmm. what it was Mm -hmm. to be a novice, and yet they knew enough about the discipline and expert that they could actually make the translation, and they ended up being better teachers. Oh, that's great. I've I've always suspected that, but I've never seen data that confirms Mm -hmm. it, so I would would love to see what you all did with that. Mm -hmm. It's been great having you here today. It's been awesome if you let me hijack one of the translations that you use. So thank you so much. I, uh, there are so many more examples and so many more ideas in the book, uh, Making Numbers Count. I want to recommend it to everyone. Thank you, Chip. Thank you. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners to pick up a copy of Making Numbers Count, available January 11th on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local bookstore. Once again, I'm Carla O'Dell. Thank you for joining us for this APQC podcast. Please go to apqc.org to learn more about our research, and we hope you have a great rest of your day. Mm